Welcome to the Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. It is Thursday, April the 1st, 2021. On this edition of the Politocrat, a look at day three of the murder trial of Derek Chauvin, who murdered George Floyd on May 25th, 2020. Yesterday was a very traumatic day in this trial. But it certainly was a victorious day for the prosecution. My look at that and a few other thoughts coming up next. Warning, the following audio may be distressing to listen to. All right. Oh my God. I can't believe this. I can't believe this. I can't believe this. I can't believe this, man. Mr. McGon. this is difficult. Can you just explain sort of what you're feeling in this moment? I can I feel helpless. I don't have a mama either. I understand him. My mom died June 25th. Hang on just one second. Let's, uh, let's take a 10 minute break. Those were the two and a half minutes, I think, that won the day, if you will, for the prosecution yesterday. That was Charles McMillan, the prosecution witness who was standing just a few feet away from what was soon going to be the dead body of one Mr. George Floyd, George Perry Floyd. It was Charles McMillan who was actually shouting things at George Floyd as George Floyd was in his last moments of life. Now, two things can be true at once. You can have a, what I call, very inappropriate and disrespectful Charles McMillan shouting at a dying man who cannot move, cannot breathe, is handcuffed, and has a knee in his neck. And yet, you can also feel a great deal of pain and compassion and empathy for one Mr. Charles McMillan, particularly on the witness stand yesterday. 
And I do suspect that most of the world watching was crying along with him. I know it was difficult for me not to shed a tear or two as I was watching this unfold. And I got texts from people who told me the same. So, certainly there were many people around the globe watching Charles McMillan yesterday who absolutely cried along with him. We have had this pandemic, we still have this pandemic, and we have the brutal, blatant, execution of a human being named George Floyd. All of us around the world saw it. And I think it's only right that all of us get to see this trial around the world. But more importantly than that, it is ultimately important that there be justice for the family of George Floyd. And I am skeptical, as you know, dear listener, that if you've listened, and I know that you have, over the last day or two, I have expressed profound, profound doubt about this trial ending up the way that you and I and many people around the world would like it to. That is in a guilty verdict on each and every count against the defendant. Derek Chauvin. I have grave doubts about it still, even after what was a very painful but very victorious day. If you are someone who was watching this trial yesterday, day number three was the one that the prosecution really grabbed. And I'll get into that in a few minutes, but I do want to say that with that said, I still have some doubts. Now, I know There have been those of you on Twitter who have been conveying to me that you think this guy is going to get convicted. And you've told me things like that on Twitter at the popcorn R-E-E-L. And one of the things that you have said, um, among other things, is that there's no way that if I were on that jury that this guy would have a hope in hell of getting away from a guilty verdict. And there were other sentiments like that that I saw that were sent to me that also, you know, added me and also that I saw around Twitter. But the important thing here, dear listener, to remember is that you and I are not on the jury. We are not on this jury. That is the thing that we still have to remember here. And this is the other thing. Sorry to dampen the mood even further on this Thursday, April 1st. And I am not fooling around on this April 1st. But I must say that all it takes as someone on Twitter reminded me and sent to me. All it takes is one. The defense needs only one juror. And this is my concern, dear listener. This is among my concerns. I mean, I didn't specifically air this in the episode yesterday. But this is one of my unaired concerns that I'm now going to air. And the concern that I am going to air, that I am airing here, is that all the defense needs is one. One, one, one juror, just one of the 12. For a hung jury. For a jury that says 11 of us think he's guilty of this ridiculous, unintentional murder charge in the second degree. And one of us doesn't think he's guilty of it. In fact, One of us doesn't think he did anything wrong. In fact, one of us doesn't think that he should spend a second behind prison bars. 
And that is what makes this such a still risky thing. A still open case is open. I mean, it's an open and shut case. Come on, everybody knows that he murdered George Floyd. We know that the defendant in this case murdered Mr. George Floyd. There's no question about it. He knows that he murdered George Floyd. The defendant himself knows this. We all saw the darn thing. We all saw the execution. Everyone has seen this tape at one stage or another, or photos of it, stills of it, etc., etc. I've I've talked about this ad infinitum. So this notion that, oh, oh yeah, this is a slam dunk. It's not a slam dunk case. It's a slam dunk in terms of, yeah, we saw the tape and on that tape, Derek Chauvin executed George Floyd. That's a slam dunk. That's obvious. That's obvious. It happened. He's a murderer. He murdered George Floyd. That happened before our very eyes. But what is not obvious is how this jury is thinking. What is not obvious is what this jury is going to do. And dear listener, that should terrify you. For even on this Thursday, you do not need to go too far back in the memory bank to know that videotape does not guarantee convictions especially when it comes to police officers. I mean, videotape guaranteed a conviction in the Central Park case years ago. Those coerced, forced, intimidated, videotaped, quote-unquote, confessions nailed five innocent black and Latino boys back in 1990 and 1991. But when you're dealing with police officers who the video shows actually committing murder, it's not such an open and shut case because those jurors could do anything. Those jurors could do anything. You and I don't know what's going on in that deliberation room. You and I don't know if these jurors are going home and watching television. You and I don't know if they're discussing this case. You and I don't know if they are watching replays of this trial. How do you know that? You don't. How do you know there haven't been fights on that jury, verbal ones, already? How do you know? You don't. So, it's all well and good, dear listener, for people to say that if they were on juries, they would make certain that Derek Chauvin, the defendant here, and the murderer here, goes down and will be under the prison bars. But they, you, me, and all but 12 people in the world are not on that jury. Are we now? Welcome back. I am so sorry for bursting your bubble. I didn't even get to what happened yesterday in full just yet. But I am sorry for bringing you back down to earth. You see, what I like to do, dear listener, at least in this instance, is to lower expectations. Because if you think for one minute that I am rooting for myself to be correct about what I think is going to happen in this particular murder trial, you are really sadly mistaken. Because I am not rooting to be correct. I am only 
saying that I believe very strongly that when all is said and done in this trial, Derek Chauvin, the defendant, murderer, executioner of George Floyd, will walk free and clear. That's my prediction. I hope I'm wrong. I pray I'm wrong. But I just don't see how the system is going to prosecute one of its own. An anti-black system with all the history of Minnesota, all the history of this state of Minnesota, not this state, but this state of the state of Minnesota, staring in your face when it comes to the police, all these states all over the country. I would be absolutely shocked if Derek Chauvin got convicted. I'll get to the video in just a moment, but I would be shocked. Now, one thing to turn this positively for a second that you might put your hat on if you are in the group who declares that Derek Chauvin's going to be convicted is that less than two years ago or thereabouts, maybe two years ago, maybe three, Mohammed Noor, albeit a black police officer, Somali-American police officer, was convicted of killing Justine Demond, who was a white woman from Australia. So that's something you can hang your hat on, but you really can't put your hat on that, can you? Because you know why? Come on, you know why. The police officer was black and the victim was white. So it doesn't matter if the police officer is black. If the victim is white, he's going down. It doesn't matter, I should say, if the uh, person's a police officer. If the person is a black police officer and the victim is a white person, a white woman in this instance, of course that black cop is going to get convicted. Muhammad Noor had shot, I think, one or two times into the uh, vehicle that I think Justine Demond was standing by in the middle of the night. I don't know. It was uh, a few years ago now. And the bullet hit her. And there wasn't very much backing of the blue, by the blue, when that happened. Muhammad Noor found himself very isolated. Somehow his brothers in blue, the white brothers in blue, did not seem too enthusiastic about rallying to his side, to his defense. Back the blue. Yeah, not so much when it came to the black cop that killed the white woman. Those white brothers were awfully silent and were not taking any position on Muhammad Noor. In fact, if they did take a position at all, it was certainly against him. Too bad that you don't see any police officers taking any position actively and openly against a murderer named Derek Chauvin. That heretofore has not happened. His white brothers have not said Jack. Openly, at least. And if they have, it, they have been few and far between. And yeah, they may have given some off-the-record or on-the-record comments to newspapers about, well, we're not defending what he did. But they're not as necessarily condemning what he did either in many, great many instances. So maybe that isn't something that you can put your hat on. Muhammad Noor being convicted in the same state a couple of years back. Maybe you can't put your hat on that. Maybe that's got absolutely nothing to do with Derek Chauvin. And I would contend that that situation, that murder by a murdering cop named Muhammad Noor is not the same as what you and I saw with our own two eyes. And that does bring me to what happened yesterday in that courtroom. I played you some audio a little while ago of Mr. Charles McMillan. And he made for the most compelling witness of the day yesterday, by far. And at the moment, the two strongest witnesses that the prosecution has had are number one, Donald Williams. I still think that he is the best witness thus far as we are into day number four now of this murder trial of 
one defendant, Derek Chauvin. And I think that Charles McMillan is the next um, best witness. He was particularly effective today. Um, excuse me. <laughs> he was particularly effective yesterday. He was very, very strong. And that audio you heard yesterday, I heard today of him yesterday, crying and breaking down on the stand was I think exactly what the prosecution was hoping for. And I know that sounds awfully crude because this is about a life lost at the end of the day. This is about a man who no longer is alive, about a family who no longer have their son, no longer have their brother, no longer have their father, no longer have their uncle. No longer have their boyfriend or husband. I think he, I think he was married. Um, but the, the point is, is that at the end of the day, a family has lost a loved one. And it sounds really crude when I and any number of people that you may listen to on other podcasts or any number of people you may listen to in the corporate news media in 24-hour cable spheres start speaking about wins and losses. And I, I've done it too here in this episode. And I apologize for that because this isn't about winning and losing. I mean, obviously it is for the parties involved in the case, but for the family, there are only degrees of losing. One of them is the life of a man who will never, ever come back. A daughter who will grow up without her father. This is the thing that often gets lost in these trials where you and I and many others around the world go back and forth as to how well we think the prosecution did today or yesterday or next week or next month. Well, this trial is scheduled to finish later on this month. We often lose sight, many of us, of the fact that there is a family who does not engage in whether the prosecution had a great day or not. They are thinking about justice for their son. And I doubt that they are toting up scores on either side of the ledger. And I do want to just mention that first so that we do not lose sight. And I'm sure that you have thought about these things. That we don't lose sight of this family. And that we do stand up with them. And that we do send them support. And I will send in the bio, in the links to this episode, I promise, um, a link to the George Floyd Foundation that um, is the authentic George Floyd page. You will notice on the internet there will be a lot of imitations of that page. But I can tell you, and I linked to it a few uh, days or weeks ago. I can definitely tell you, dear listener, that the page that I will link to is the authentic page of George Floyd's family. And it is the George Floyd Foundation. I will, um, in the next commercial break, actually give you the actual web address for it so that you are fully aware of it. And it is an authentic page of the family, for the family and by the family to raise money for George Floyd to help people in the community in Minneapolis, there in South Minneapolis and elsewhere, and to educate kids as well. This is um, a really important foundation, and it is set up by the family. So I really do want you, and I'm going to do this myself, I'm going to be donating to them, and I hope that you do as well. Um, just as we donated, I certainly did, and I'm sure there are people listening to me who did, to the families of the um, Asian women who were gunned down so brutally a couple of weeks ago. I can't believe it. A couple of weeks have already passed. A couple of weeks have passed since that cowardly, brutal execution of six Asian women and two other people. And I donated to some of those families and I want you to do the same with George Floyd now. His family is going through a hell of a lot. This now is the second killing of George Floyd. Although I'm sure they've probably experienced hundreds of killings of their son over this last 10 months plus. 
all the times it's been looped on video and on television, on the internet, they've probably experienced a million different killings of their son. But this one that they have experienced these last few days, and particularly yesterday, would have probably been, well, I don't want to speak to them, for them. But I think for the those of us watching who are not members of George Floyd's family, this would have been the most difficult and excruciatingly uncomfortable and traumatic day of this trial to watch. This particular day number three that took place yesterday on Wednesday, the 31st of March, would have been the most difficult of days. Whether you knew George Floyd or not, whether you had never seen this videotape before, and of course you have, or not. This would yesterday have been the most traumatic day. And for that family, George Floyd's family, I cannot imagine just how painful this surely was yesterday. There were numerous showings of the nine and a half minute execution of George Floyd by the defendant. And it was really difficult to watch, to say the least. That's an understatement. I could not watch the whole thing. I had to go back to work and focus on it. And it was really difficult to do. And to hear this young brother expiring and everything else that we saw and heard, it was just soul-crushing. And it broke your, well, I'll speak for me, my spirit, just watching that. I think anybody who has a semblance of humanity within them, about them, would have felt similarly or certainly would have felt profoundly disturbed, profoundly traumatized. This was traumatizing. Can you imagine what it must be like for George Floyd's family now watching that video again? The way that it was dissected, the way it was. And the prosecution did an excellent job yesterday. And as I said, I have raised questions about these prosecutors. I do not, and I still say this, I do not think that they are very sharp. I, I, think, they're com I think they're competent. I'm not saying that. But when I say I don't think they're very sharp, dear listener, I am saying to you, that I do not think that they are presenting this case as dynamically as they should. I think that, is this their strategy? To just be understated as they've been and procedural? And I praised that on day number one of the trial. I said that, yeah, you know, they have been fairly pro forma. They have been procedural, which I think is what you'd probably want because the evidence is so strong. You don't have to do this. But then in day two, my criticism was you need to really pound the drums here because you're still dealing with 12 people. You are not trying this case for the millions of people around the world who are very clear about the guilt of Derek Chauvin. That is not who you're trying this case for. These prosecutors are trying this case for 12 people that we've not seen. We don't know who these people are. We have no idea. And we may never know. But the fact of the matter is, is that my question, well, the fact of the matter is, is that that is who the prosecution, and I can f call them lackluster all I want, lackluster and procedural and you know, and I had problems with the fact that a couple of the prosecutors were referring, as I've said before, to the defendant as Mr. Chauvin, as if he is a gold card member of a frequent flyer club. I, I, I just am not having that of this Mr. Chauvin. He is the defendant. That is what he is in a court of law. He is the defendant. And I hear a prosecutor calling George Floyd, that man, George Floyd. You should be saying the gentleman, George, George Floyd. That's what you should be saying about him. The gentleman, George Floyd. Give that man respect. 
Give him his respect. And that does play, and I said this on Twitter, at the Popcorn R-E-E-L, yesterday. That does play on juries. I'm telling you, subconsciously it seeps in. If you are not giving the deceased any semblance of respect, the jury sees that. Even in the subtlety, it registers in their brain, even before they are aware of it. You have to give George Floyd his humanity and maximum respect. This man is no longer here. He didn't do anything. And even if he had done something, and if you think that a $20 bill being forged by someone, we don't even know who, is something, you haven't seen anything yet. George Floyd didn't do anybody any harm at all. And I want these prosecutors to start respecting the man as if he is the very victim that he was and is, not as if he is some kind of assailant. No, I'm not suggesting that the prosecution are demonizing him. I'm not. But with the defense attorney being as racist as he is and doing what he can to demonize George Floyd, it certainly does not help to get a mild assist from the prosecutors when they say things like Mr. Chauvin, when they say things like that man, George Floyd, when they don't say things like the gentleman, George Floyd, when they don't say things like the defendant, Derek Chauvin. Do you see how language plays an important role? Here I go again about language. Language plays a critical role in how we think, how we feel, how we behave, the laws, what we say or what we don't say, how we think about things, how we conceptualize, and how we perceive. It's all there. And I still haven't really got to the meat of yesterday just yet. And I promise you, I will, right after this. Gayhe with uh, I Am Not Your Negro. That is part of the score for that incredibly great documentary. My goodness me, I do think, dear listener, that I Am Not Your Negro is one of the greatest documentaries ever made. Raoul Peck directed that gem of a documentary from 2016, an Oscar-nominated documentary feature, It lost out to the O.J. Simpson film, that seven or eight part series that was shown on ESPN slash ABC. And I I, I just don't know why, honestly. I Am Not Your Negro is a documentary that's watched all over the world. It has stood the test of time. I know it's been just about uh, just over four years uh, since it came out. Um, It's available. I'll put a link to it, to the entire thing on YouTube. You can watch it for free on YouTube, F-R-E-E, for free. I will link to it in this episode, in these liner notes. Um, So please watch it. It's on Netflix as well. Um, But you've got to watch this documentary. You've got to. It is so timely. It is timeless. James Baldwin, you have got to watch this documentary, I Am Not Your Negro. Raul Peck is the director. And by the way, Raul Peck is directing... Another series, uh, well, this is a series as opposed to one documentary. It's a documentary called Exterminate the Souls, I think. I forget what what the title is. Oh, dear. Um, But it's a really uh, powerful work. HBO has it coming up in the next week or so, April 7th and 8th. You have got to watch that as well. I will put a link to it. Um, Exterminate the Souls, I believe it's called. Um, 
Wow. Um, Raul Peck. So thank you for bearing with me on that. This is really important. Um, and I, I, I because you, you ha- I, I think watching a documentary like I Am Not Your Negro, well, it certainly informs what's going on now. We have an anti-black society. That is not something that should come as any kind of breaking news flash to anyone listening to this podcast. Dear listener, you know this very well indeed, that we are living in a society in the United States of America. And by the way, in other countries too, the United Kingdom thinks that, you know, government officials in the United Kingdom, including the Prime Minister Boris Johnson, thinks that institutionalized racism does not exist, does not think it happens at all. These are people running government. Oh, and did I forget to tell people in the UK that there's an election coming up. There's an election coming up on May the 6th. That's only a month or so from now. One month and five days. Thursday, May the 6th, 2021. For those of you listening in the United Kingdom, that is the day you get to vote. And I don't know if your member of parliament is good or whether they're not good. But if they are a conservative or a Tory, same thing. You need to really kick them to the curb. You really do. Even if they are doing a half-decent job. Which is kind of sacrilege to say that, but we've got to cut down this conservative majority in England, in the UK overall, in Westminster, in the House of Parliament. I mean, this is ridiculous. Put out a report that says that institutionalized racism does not exist in the United Kingdom. What the hell are they thinking? Well, I know what they're thinking. You know, this is the same Boris Johnson who used derogatory and racist terms for black people in Daily Telegraph columns. He is a grade A racist and a misogynist and to pretend otherwise is to deny reality. There is no question about that. To pretend otherwise about Boris Johnson is to deny reality. We are living in an anti-black system in the United States, one that attacks black people at every turn. And the system attacked George Floyd, make no mistake. And it attacked him again when there was this lousy, unintentional murder charge in the second degree. I've talked about this before. I'm not going to go over it in depth now. But this was disgraceful. And it's another way of the system telling black people that their lives are not worthy of charges of intentional murder being put on a white person who takes that black life. Because isn't that what's wrong to begin with, dear listener? That we are all sitting here around the world watching this trial. And the worst charge, and I always put that word when I talk about this case, in quotes, the worst charge that Derek Chauvin could get convicted of is unintentional second degree murder. Un, as in UN, United Nations, although this was not the United Nations, even though there was an Asian American there who is a thug and a murdering you-know-what. Oh, I came so close to saying the F word. I'm trying to keep away from it here. I do all of that on Twitter, as you've probably noticed if you've seen some of the tweets that I do at the popcorn R-E-E-L. But to charge Derek Chauvin with unintentional murder, that's your worst charge? And we're all sitting here hoping that this jury convicts him of that charge? The fact that it's not intentional first-degree murder, much less intentional second-degree, if there's such a charge, I'm sure there is, is a value judgment statement being made by the anti-black society, the racist society, the systemic, institutionalized racist society that we're living in here in the United States. It's a value judgment that says that George Floyd's life in the eyes of an anti-black racist white power structure and white society 
in that in their view, George Floyd's life was not worthy of attaching a charge of first degree intentional murder or second degree intentional murder. And that's at the end of the day, dear listener, that is the thing that the society is telling you, telling you it thinks about black people, telling you that. It's telling you that by the charges that come back. The world saw this. This guy, the defendant, is posing for pictures with his knee on the neck, in the neck, embedded in the neck and throat of George Floyd, who is lying there on the floor, face down in handcuffs with two other officers holding him down. Posing for pictures with a friggin' sunglasses on his head and his hands and his pockets. This guy is performing a live snuff film. And all of these video cell phone cameras are capturing the darn thing. And the best you can come up with, Minnesota, Keith Ellison and others, is second degree? Unintentional? Murder? Unintentional? Guy sat on him for 10 blooming minutes. 9 minutes and 29 seconds. And I didn't. I did say I was going to avoid talking about this again, but I am talking about it. So what? Nearly 10 minutes. His knee was still embedded in the neck of George Floyd when there was no pulse, when he had already died. And he didn't take his knee off the neck of George Floyd until the paramedics came. And there was an attempt by a paramedic to get Chauvin to check for a pulse. And apparently, Chauvin sprayed mace in the face or at this paramedic. How the hell is this not intentional murder? At the very least in the second degree. And I contend, dear listener, that this is all about the value judgment that the society places on black life. I know the smart Alex out there would say, oh, it's a result of the legal system. And uh, the legal system decided, uh, and the DA of Minnesota, Keith Ellison, decided, uh, listen, I'm an attorney. Criminal law is not my discipline, but I have interned in law firms doing criminal law. I have interned, when I was still in law school, I interned at firms in specialized criminal law cases. Let me tell you something. If a prosecutor wants a charge, well, damn well, damn it, that prosecutor will get their charge. Believe you me. They did it for the Central Park Five, the exonerated five. Did it for them. They found all kinds of charges to put on those boys. And that's right, they were boys. 14, 15, 16. It's the boys. Boys! So don't you tell me out there, whomever you are, pulling the nonsense that, oh, this is just the way it was and the system did this. Give me a break. I can tell you something else. And in fact, I can tell you something for nothing. If that was me on video choking the life out of Derek Chauvin while he was in handcuffs, what charges do you think they would have given against me? Just living without feeling Still, me have to make a real
Renton Queasy Johnson with Want Figo Rave. Great tune from the album Forces of Victory. Linton Queasy Johnson, really um, maybe pronouncing his name wrong, and I apologize if I am. But Linton Queasy Johnson's one of the greats, reggae greats of all time, really is. Um, those of you of a certain age, I'm sure, know who he is. But if you don't, please, please get familiar with him. Linton, L-I-N-T-O-N, middle name K-W-E-S, as in Sam, I, and Johnson. His last name, the common spelling, with the H in it, of course. Um, want fee go rave please uh listen to that in full great album great song so you know i i do want to before i forget i do want to and i will provide a link in this episode to this so um hopefully you've got a pen ready and if you don't just click on the link um in the uh, uh line of notes of this episode and you can find the best line of notes to this episode on Apple and Spotify. Those are two of the platforms where you really can see the links and the text and the hyperlinks and you can click on them and it's very clear. And there may be other platforms that this podcast is on where you can see them, but I know for a fact if you listen to this on Apple, on Spotify, you will be able to get the links in discrete form. It will be clear, it will be easy to read, easy to click on, and away we go. And this is the link I'm going to include, along with the uh, full-length movie, I'm Not Your Negro, which I've also done a, a, uh, an audio, full-length audio commentary for. I'm going to supply that link as well, if I may be so uh, bold and brash. I'm going to include that link, my audio commentary for the film, but more importantly, much, 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 much more importantly, the film itself, a separate link that you can watch for free, F-R-E-E, I Am Not Your Negro, my commentary will be a separate link. And this link, most important of all, George Floyd Memorial Foundation.org. That's George Floyd Memorial Foundation.org. That is the link that you need to go to. Get involved, contribute to this foundation. It's called, once again, I got the name wrong earlier, but this is the correct name of it. It's called George Floyd Memorial Foundation. And the web address, again, is GeorgeFloydMemorialFoundation.org. This is run by his family, by the family of George Floyd. It is the only page you need to be going to. Accept no substitutes. This is the one, the only page set up exclusively by his family members. It is a non-profit organization. And I'm telling you, you're going to see others very uh, convincing, actually, in imitations. And some of them say on them, I can't breathe. That should be a sign right there that the page is not authentic. So please go to this page. It's called George Floyd Memorial Foundation.org. It is the official page for the George Floyd family. It is a memorial foundation that deals with education, justice, and um, all kinds of important issues for black people, for African Americans specifically. You can donate, um, get in touch, you can contribute by hitting the contribute area and the donate page. I'm going to put a link separately to the donate page as well. And um, you have uh, email signups, which which you should really do to find out what the organization, what the Memorial Foundation is up to. Yes, there is a photograph you will see on the donate page of at least four people in I Can't Breathe shirts. But what separates this from these fake pages that are not authorized by the family is that some of these other pages have the words I can't breathe pop up immediately when you get on the page. And I'm telling you, that is not the official George Floyd page. The official page run by his family, I'll say it again, it's called George Floyd Memorial Foundation. George Floyd Memorial Foundation. The web address again, George Floyd Memorial Foundation.org. 
and I will put a link to the donate page as well, which is the same address with a forward slash and the word donate after it. And you can easily donate. You go to the bottom of the page or near the bottom of the page, you click on the donate button and voila, PayPal. So there you go. And I'm telling you, you have a choice. You can donate whatever you choose. There's $25, 50 100 or any amount that you wish. You can make it a monthly donation. You can do it through PayPal um, which is, or through a debit card or credit card. So look, you really need to do this. If you felt the pain when you watched that video yesterday, however uncomfortably you sat through that and however traumatically it affected you because it was extremely traumatic to watch it. Some of these angles I had never seen before. I don't know if you had. Some of the things that we saw on that video yesterday were even more disturbing than what we had seen, even previously as disturbing as that was. There's a tremendous amount of mental health counseling that will need to happen, especially for that family, but for all of us in terms of what we've been subjected to here. But it doesn't compare to what the family has gone through. No one is suffering on this loss regarding George Floyd, this murder of him, as much as his family are. Nobody. There are only people in the world who can relate to it who've actually been there, like Tamika Palmer, the mother of Breonna Taylor, and people who are similarly situated. So please donate to the George Floyd Memorial Foundation at georgefloydmemorialfoundation.org. I'll provide all the necessary links. So this is, you know, this this day three yesterday was really compelling. I talked about the prosecutors not necessarily being at the sharpest, at the best. I kind of lampooned them a little bit. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. Uh, Minnesota nice and all this. I should have not have done that. I think that's probably a little bit below the belt. Um, so I certainly apologize for that because I just don't think that that's very mature. Um, of course, I do say a lot of things that some people would not find mature on Twitter when I curse out some of these murderers like Officer Tao, you know, and obviously Derek Chauvin and the other two killer cops, one of whom is is African-American, by the way, or half African-American or whatever he, he calls himself. Um, you know, this is the this is. Yeah, I mean, this is just these people are scumbags. And that's the that's just the PG rated version of what I, you know, what I would call them, what I do call them on Twitter at the popcorn, R-E-E-L. These people are such scumbags and they've got kids too. You know, that's the thing that should terrify anybody, whether you have kids or not, that they go home to kids that call them daddy. Hey, daddy. And these and these pieces of garbage murdered somebody. And I wonder if their kids ever saw that video. I wonder if their kids have ever seen that. I wonder what their kids think about that. And by the way, the thing I wanted to say that I didn't quite say in one of the prior segments. I wonder if any of those jurors shed a tear upon watching that video yesterday. I wonder if any of those jurors shed a tear when Charles McMillan, and I should add this because I didn't before, who said on the witness stand that he himself had lost his mother. And I believe it was on June 25th of last year, exactly a month after he witnessed the murder and execution of George Floyd. Now, he didn't specify what year. He said on June 25th which could have been June 25th, 2000, June 25th, 1990, June 25th, 2010. It could have been June 25th, 2020, exactly one month after watching George Floyd call for his own mother, who had been dead at least two years. It's all too much, isn't it? How are you doing when you... I forget about listening to me. I'm, how, do you, how are you feeling when you watch this? Are you processing what your brain is taking in? And did you 
Sleep last night okay. Were you able to get through the night? And I'm not even talking about what's going on in your personal life. It's none of my damn business. I'm not talking about that. I'm sure there's lots of ups and downs in, in, in your life, dear listener. None of us are without the challenges. Some more than others, of course. But I wonder, did you manage to sleep last night? After watching what you watched yesterday. I mean, that was the first thing I was asking myself is where were the mental health professionals when that video was shown around the world the way it was from the body camera's perspective in a really powerful way. We really got, quote-unquote, inside everything. And when those bastards handcuffed George Floyd, tell, told him to sit down against the wall, why didn't those police officers take a moment or two moments, or four moments, or five, or ten minutes to summon mental health professionals, number one. And number two, to just question him. Just question him. He was already handcuffed, sitting down against a wall. Why didn't those police officers, between the four of them, whether it was the one that initially took him out, Thomas Lane, or whoever the hell he was, or any of the others, why didn't any of them see fit to question George Floyd right there and then as he was sitting against the wall. Question him. Ascertain what's going on. They never did. Pulled him up from against the wall, yanked him, shoved him into a cruiser. The guy had been telling them for 10 minutes that he is claustrophobic. They didn't care. Can we assist you? No, nothing. 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 They bundled him in. He's six foot whatever. He clearly couldn't fit laterally into that space. So they pulled him out, threw him down to the floor, and then sat on him and killed him. Treated him like a piece of meat. Oh no, worse than that. Treated him worse than dog's dinner. It was just disgusting to watch. That's how I feel. Yeah, angry. That's how I feel about this. Whatever your emotions are, you should feel them. You should never stop feeling in this world because the day that you stop feeling, you're dead. Simone with Mississippi Goddamn, a song that is timeless, sadly, but it is timeless, and um, that's part of the song that um, people don't play often when they do play uh, portions of that song on the radio. Um, of course, they do play most of it, I guess. Do they still play that song on the radio? I don't even know if they do. You probably have to go to a channel uh, on Sirius XM or something to find Nina Simone, but you don't have to go too far on the internet to find the one, the only high priestess of soul, Nina Simone, with her music of social consciousness and black pride and upliftment. And Mississippi Goddamn is definitely applied to Minnesota Goddamn because here we are, you know, Minneapolis Goddamn, Minnesota Goddamn. And um, there's no reason why we. Um, couldn't add the word goddamn in all of the 50 states in these United States because, let's be honest, when it comes to a black person in this country, that is exactly what we are thinking and feeling whenever a George Floyd or a, and a Tatiana Jefferson or a Sandra Bland or a Rakia Boyd or a Breonna Taylor... I can go on and on and on and on and on. Charlena Lyles. Uh, I mean, this is what happens, right? And um, uh, being 
caught in this sobering moment is something that I'm not going to apologize for because when you really do stop and think, dear listener, about what you saw yesterday and extrapolating far beyond that, what you have seen or heard and known about the United States of America when it comes to the way it behaves and the way the people in the country behave toward black people. And that includes some people who are black because you had a mayor of Philadelphia drop actual bombs on a black family in Philadelphia in 1983 or five whichever it was, 83 or 85, that actually happened in Philadelphia, the move bombing. Police dropped bombs by order of the black mayor. So that's happened too. And you have Asians too, some of whom have this contempt for black people. My guest uh, on a couple of occasions on this podcast has been Manju Kulkarni, and she is a member of the South Asian community, if I um, remember correctly. And, and she and I have talked about this. She's the one that brought that up, I think, one of the two times that she's been on here. And I endeavored to bring her back to talk about what happened um, last month in Atlanta. Well, we know what happened, but I want to, well, maybe have a conversation with her about that if she wants to. You know, we'll talk about that or talk about some things that, we can talk about and, you know, we've talked about some really tough subjects. Um, and of course, we hope that we can talk about something that will bring a smile and a laugh. And occasionally I like to think that sometimes on this dear podcast and this loveliest pop podcast you've listened to in the last five minutes <laughs> that that I could bring some of that. Um, but but we live in the real world and I'm not going to sit here and pretend like everything's fine. It's not What's going on in Ethiopia right now is a human rights violation at the very least. You know, what's going on in Tigray in Ethiopia is essentially war crimes. That's what it is. It's war crimes. And the crimes of violence against women, it's just beyond, beyond evil. And the killing that goes on, you know, so I'm not going to do that. We've got to have a global perspective. And yes, you, you have times where you laugh if you can make the most of, of these days we have. And joy is all important, but you can't turn your back on what's going on and right around you and around the planet. If you, do not, if you do not know what's gone on before you, you do not know what is going on around you. James Baldwin. And it is incumbent that we do. You know, we have to. This was a very difficult day yesterday, this particular day, Wednesday, very difficult for people watching this video. Extremely traumatizing. Extremely so. Some of the comments I came across on Twitter. This was a crime against us. And make no mistake, it was certainly a crime first and foremost against black people. There's no doubt about it. Obviously, first and foremost, a crime against George Floyd. Um, this is really awful stuff. And the prosecution, if they didn't move any of those jurors, they will never move a juror. They will never move a juror if they didn't move them yesterday. And Charles McMillan surely moved those jurors. I would really like to know if any of them shed a tear. I haven't read the news accounts. In fact, I really, at some point, don't want to read the nauseating news accounts of what those writers saw, not impugning their ability to write and be journalists. I am fed up of, really, I try to stay away from the corporate news media. I mean, I do occasionally read some stories, but, you know, we need to start defining these things with our own eyes and ears. We know what we saw on that videotape. We can write about it. Maybe that provides some kind of therapy for somebody out there. But I've got to tell you that 
It was an extremely difficult day yesterday to watch that video, to process what was going on, to see things you hadn't seen before. And to know that that happened to that man, that gentleman, George Floyd, is just absolutely gut-wrenching. I hope you do indeed find some change around the place, some loose change. And donate it now, won't you please, to the George Floyd Memorial Foundation. Could you please do that for me? And for more importantly than that, more importantly than me, his family, the family of George Floyd. Please, George Floyd meant everything to his family, everything to his child, everything to his other to the kids he had everything to the woman in his life everything we've got to stand up and support this family go to george floyd memorial foundation dot o-r-g right now thank you very much for listening to this edition of The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore.